Hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is Talking Politics. Today, we're joined by Anand Menon, Director of the UK in a Changing Europe, Catherine Barnard, Professor of EU Law, Helen Thompson, Professor of Political Economy. We're going to talk about Brexit. It's just like old times, except this is Brexit in the age of COVID. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, Europe's leading magazine of culture and ideas. Improve the quality of your solitude with a subscription to the LRB. They'll send you exceptional analysis of the politics, economics, sociology and science behind the crisis and reportage from around the world, but also gloriously unrelated, richly immersive distraction from the world's best authors and critics writing about history and philosophy, art and technology, fiction and poetry. Just go to lrb.me slash talk and get your first 12 issues for just £12. That's lrb.me slash talk. I guess we should just check in on where everyone is. Um, I'm in Cambridge. I know Helen is in London. Catherine, I'm assuming you're in Cambridge. Just outside, absolutely. And Anand, where are you? I'm in Oxford. Great. The Golden Triangle. How I hate that phrase. <laughs> you know, some of this, as always, when we talk about Brexit, can get quite technical. We'll try not to be too technical. But today matters. We're recording this on the 1st of July. We have passed the deadline before which it was, in theory, possible for the negotiators, us and the EU, to agree that an extension might be needed because on the 31st of December, Without that extension, there will be no deal. Catherine, I mean, it's technically true that we've passed that deadline. In practice, does that mean it is no longer possible if we get stuck, if the one or other or both sides decide that we really do need more time? Can they now not get it? Well, the formal legal position is that it's just not possible to seek an extension of the transition period Lawyers have looked at this and thought about various creative ways of trying to deliver. Um, For example, some people say, look, we can use Article 50. Do you remember Article 50? We've talked lots about it. That was the basis for the divorce. Well, we can just use Article 50 to amend the withdrawal agreement. Some international lawyers think that's possible. But most EU lawyers think that that was turned off on the 31st of January. That was the day when the UK ceased to be a member state of the European Union. Other people say, well, we can do something creative through some sort of international agreement. But the big problem facing the EU is that it can only act in the areas where it's been given the powers to act. And having an international agreement that says all of EU law will essentially carry on applying to the UK will require some legal basis in the treaty. And so in reality, it's really difficult to find a way forward. So perhaps the most likely thing will be that if there is a trade deal before the end of the year, it has a long, longish transition period built into the front of it to give the UK and the EU time to adapt to the significant changes that the true post-Brexit world will bring. So the big if there is if there is a trade deal before the end of the year, and of course it's possible, and I'm assuming that we're back in another cycle of brinkmanship. I mean, there are serious negotiations that are going to be happening this month. But things are really going to get serious in October, November. And and are are we back in that cycle, do you think, where 
there's still going to be quite a lot of chat without anyone really focusing on the cliff edge. And we have to wait again until we get closer to the cliff edge before there's real movement. Yeah, to an extent. And I think one of the things that a lot of people noticed when they signed the withdrawal agreement was that six month gap between the deadline and the actual cliff edge makes a huge difference because in the past when we've extended we've done it you know with days if not hours to go and this time it was always going to be hard to get that sense of focus six months before anything was going to happen what I would say is it's not just about deadlines it's also about covid and you know you can't exaggerate the degree to which political attention has been taken away from this by the pandemic, quite rightly so. So it's partly about getting the pandemic under control so that there is the bandwidth to think about Brexit, because ultimately, a deal only happens when political principles get involved. And my expectation would be that might happen in the autumn, though, if we're in the middle of a second spike, then all bets are off. And I suspect that at that point, no deal becomes quite likely. So I mean, that in a way is is the point at which what Catherine was talking about and what you're talking about intersect because so say there is a a renewed focus on this COVID seems under control and then it comes roaring back and maybe we were close to a deal or there was real movement and then suddenly everyone's attention is taken away and it becomes firefighting again about a completely different issue which is managing a virus that would be the circumstance in which you think well then you do need to give yourself a few more months and that's the thing that we seem to have ruled out i mean from what catherine says it's really hard so there is a kind of worst case scenario here which is we do get stuck in november again yeah absolutely though i mean what i should flag is that catherine and i have sort of sparred over this for years now that i think there is nothing in the law that politics can't fix <laughs> um, okay, that is and a I big point, division between two perspectives. And I, and I point out that the EU is a system based on the law. And yes, of course, there are fudges around the edge. But the reality is that it is a legal construct, ultimately. And the EU can only act where it's got the competence, which is legal jargon for the power of a legal basis to be able to act. So you can't just say, oh, well, we'll just do a quick deal and we'll get it sorted. This really is like old times. <laughs> I'm going to bring Helen in as the the arbiter of that dispute. But I suspect Helen's on the side of politics. Helen, do you think it could get really stuck in November, December? The point, it seems to me, is, is that it, it's already profoundly stuck and that COVID has actually really created a different substantive political space in which the negotiations are taking place because it has changed one of the big stumbling blocks to there being an agreement which is the EU space around level playing field and state aid because the basic problem in terms of reaching an agreement is is that from the beginning that the EU wanted effectively to get the UK to continue to be part of the EU's state aid rules and that's what in a significant part this level playing field issue is about and that the the UK government wanted to assert UK sovereignty i.e its sovereign right to depart from the EU's regime and what we've seen through the Covid crisis is that the EU has had to suspend its state aid rules and this means that actually we're trying to negotiate something about which is already profound disagreement between the two sides with moving parts. So in one sense, I think it makes it harder for the EU to say, look, you've got to sign up to something 
which the UK doesn't want to in the first place, and in some senses, indeed, is a red line for the UK government. And yet that this is a moving target in which we can then decide, we will then have the discretion as to how those rules apply in any emergency. And as you say, David, we're in an emergency at the moment, but we can't rule out the possibility that we're going back to a a later emergency. So it seems to me that, that the COVID crisis has actually made the gulf between the two sides over this issue bigger than it already was. And then that makes, and it actually reduced the space for any kind of fudging of it. Can I throw a rather large rock into that pond, which is that you've got the Northern Ireland Protocol. Why is that relevant? Well, it's written in code and it's also very difficult to understand what it says until you really dig quite deep into it. But the bottom line is from the Northern Ireland Protocol is that Article 10 says that EU state aid rules will carry on applying to the United Kingdom insofar as it affects Northern Ireland and interstate trade aid between the North and the South. Why does that matter? Well, George Perrette, who's one of the leading authors on state aid, makes the point that if the furlough scheme, for example, was adopted next year, after we have left, the UK would still have to notify the furlough scheme to the EU because the furlough scheme, it's a UK-wide scheme, but it will affect and benefit Northern Ireland manufacturers and so thus affect trading goods between the North and the South. And crucially, it can be adjudicated on by the European Commission and also ultimately the European Court of Justice. So in one sense, the Northern Ireland Protocol is a Trojan horse here because the Northern Ireland Protocol says actually EU state aid rules still apply to part of the United Kingdom. And that's a real problem for the UK going forward. I'll bring in Anand in a second, but Catherine... Is the fundamental issue here the European Court of Justice? I mean, is that the likeliest point on which, if we're going to get really stuck, we're going to get stuck, that question of jurisdiction? I think that it is a a real problem. And I think it's quite striking that Marc Francois, currently the chair of the ERG, sent a letter to Michel Barnier earlier in the week. And one of the things he said is very clearly there will be no jurisdiction of, of the Court of Justice. Now, the way round that problem, and this is what the UK is pushing for in its draft free trade agreement, is that there should be no European Union concepts used in the European Union law concepts used in the free trade agreement. And if there are no EU law concepts used, therefore there's no role for the Court of Justice because the role for the Court of Justice is confined to interpreting EU law norms or EU law rules. But the problem is, if we've got to apply the EU state aid rules as part of the level playing field, that's where the role for the Court of Justice comes in. And it's already the case, even if we leave with no deal. Remember the Northern Ireland Protocol, which is part of the withdrawal agreement, the divorce text, will still be binding on the United Kingdom as a whole. And and where do you think the biggest sticking point is? Uh, well, I think state aid is a sticking point, and probably the main one, because I can I can see how you can get a solution on fish. But it's, I think it's worth pointing out that this goes to the heart of what Brexit is about, what British politics is, and what this government is about. Because ultimately, Brexit for the people now in charge of it, I'm not saying this was the case for all Brexit voters, but for the government, Brexit was about breaking free of rules imposed on us from the outside because the government wants to have freedom to act as it wants. That ties into the nature of British politics and spawns the EU concerns because of one of one of the things, of course, we don't really have in this country absent 
EU membership is kind of quasi-constitutional law. That is to say, laws that bind us that are beyond the reach of Parliament. That's what EU law gave us. That's why workers' rights, environmental standards and stuff at the EU level mattered, because Parliament by itself couldn't overturn them. Now, we cannot pledge anything beyond the life of a Parliament once we're out of EU law, and that, you know, understandably concerns the European Union. And finally, this it speaks to the, the nature of this specific government, because this is a government, as we see day after day, whether it's stuff about the civil service, stuff about planning laws and newts, strangely enough, in Boris Johnson's speech, this is a government that likes to be able to do what it wants immediately without any checks and balances. And so those three things are all mutually reinforcing. So it, it, it's not just an issue in the negotiation. I think it's far wider and more profound than that. This goes to the heart of what we are as a country, what this government is and what Brexit was meant to be. And that's why the Northern Ireland Protocol remains such an important issue, because it does still curtail the UK from doing what it wants when it wants. Now, okay, the argument is it only applies to Northern Ireland, but as I've just explained about the furlough scheme, there will be a knock-on effect for other decisions which are taken UK-wide. And that's one of the reasons why there's such resistance to the withdrawal agreement on the part of this government. They see Theresa May's government having signed away too much of British sovereignty already. And remember, the withdrawal agreement doesn't just cover the Northern Ireland Protocol, but also covers things like citizens' rights. And for the first time, ironically, you see the language of direct effect and supremacy in the withdrawal agreement, language which, of course, causes uh, real trouble to the Brexiteurs, language that actually is not used in the EU treaties themselves, although, of course, is well-established part of EU law. Yeah, I mean, I think there's several things here. First of all, I think that um, Anand's right in that this does go to the heart of a, a constitutional question for the UK, and that is is that we don't actually, in the end, have a system in which Parliament is absolutely sovereign. Parliament has the sovereign authority to legislate on most matters, but in regard to, say, devolution, there are certain things that, in practice, Parliament can't actually legislate as it wants. But we don't have a constitutional regime that protects certain things like workers' rights and environmental standards in the way in which treaty law serves to act as effectively constitutional rules about those matters for the for the European Union. But I think it's just inconceivable to think that the, the British government or any UK government, and it wouldn't actually be just this UK government, is going to agree constitutional rules about these matters as part of a trade agreement with either the European Union or indeed any other state, or not the EU's a state, but any other, in this case, individual state, that it would be negotiating um, with, as Anon says, you know, in some sense at the heart of Brexit lies a claim to reassert the more traditional UK constitution against the constitutional constraints that EU membership generated. But I think this question also goes to an existential, has an existential dimension, if you like, for the, for the European Union itself, because the European Union's premise, at least I'd say since the the 90s, since Maastricht, and but perhaps even from the single European Act and, and the completion of the, the single European market, was that the European Union, or the European community as it then um, was, is the dominant site of political authority over trade and regulatory matters 
within Europe. And I'm saying that within Europe, not just meaning within the European Union itself. So that there's actually this idea that other European states ultimately have to conform on trade and regulatory matters with the European Union. And that they're not, in some sense, allowed economic independence over, they are in, in relation to their currency, but not in relation to matters pertaining to the single market, if they want to do trade with the European Union. And what Brexit has effectively created is a situation where you have a, a large European state that is simply saying that it's not prepared to accept that. Now, to some extent, I think Theresa May's government was prepared to accept an accommodation with that sort of understanding that the European Union has about its economic, if you like, sphere of, of influence, to use that language. But Boris Johnson government's not prepared to accept that. Now, you can argue about whether it's going to be possible in the long term or in the medium to long term for the UK to assert that much autonomy from the European Union's trade and practices and regulatory um, standards. But in the short term, there isn't any doubt, in my mind at least, that this government is going to stand its ground about that question and say, we do not accept that we have to be part of the EU's economic sphere of influence. And so this is a question for the EU as much as it is for the UK, because we've got you know, really competing premises from which both sides are starting. And that's why I'm a little bit sceptical about the idea that more time is necessarily going to sort this out, because one side or the other has got actually, in order to allow for a trade agreement, to make a massive concession. I absolutely agree with Helen there that the issue of time isn't an issue about we need time to sign a deal. The time comes into it because some businesses think that if we'd extended transition, they would have had longer to adapt either to deal or no deal. But I don't seriously think, as Helen says, that having loads more time would make a deal easier because there are fundamental issues here. But the interesting thing for me in what Helen said is, yes, the EU, when it comes to trade, is fairly hegemonic in the sense that it's always wanted to exercise control over its neighbours. And in the past, it's done that from a position of strength, whether it be Ukraine or the Norwegians or the Swiss, it's pulling states into its orbit. The curious and interesting thing about Brexit is that this defensiveness comes from a perceived sense of weakness. We don't want to undermine our own system for you. And the really big question this poses for the European Union, it seems to me, is, when is a third country just like any other, not a third country just like any other? Is Britain sufficiently different to make exceptions? And would making exceptions really undermine the internal unity of the European Union as they claim? And I simply, I mean, I'm very sceptical about that, to be honest myself. But it sort of begs a bigger question about the EU's relationship with its immediate neighbourhood, because for the first time, they've got a big, relatively powerful, important trading partner to think about. And they're refusing to think about it any differently to how they've thought about other neighbours before. That takes us back to level playing field and state aids issues, because they know that the UK is a big and relatively powerful player on its doorstep. And therefore, they want, they, the EU, want to lay down the rules of the game. And they happen to be EU rules of the game. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. 
$45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I think all of you, and I know Helen has repeatedly reminded us that you know, there's a tendency in the UK to see it from our perspective. And not only does it look very different as seen from a European perspective, but a European perspective is often not a single thing. And there are different ways of viewing this on the European side. And then, and so the UK in a changing Europe, Europe is changing, and it may be changing quite rapidly in the age of COVID. And the crisis has produced some divisions, which maybe were there before, but have been exaggerated, but it's also created the conditions, at least potentially for more solidarity around certain things, and some huge choices some of which have sort of been made, but most of which are still to come, about the collectivization of risk and recovery. So when you look at this from the European perspective in the current crisis and then looking forward six months, do you see serious possibilities either of the, the gaps widening or actually of the solidarity really kicking in? I mean, could Europe be fundamentally changing over the next six months? Possibly is my rather unsatisfactory answer. I mean, you say Europe is changing, but what strikes me about the European Union, I sort of haven't looked systematically at the European Union since probably 2015 when UK and the Changing Europe started. But whenever I sort of glance at it, I'm struck by the, the utter familiarity of the debates, which seem to be the same as those that have gone on for years and years and years. Even in the last three months, even in the COVID. Yeah, to an extent. Yeah. I mean, it's a larger scale thing because of COVID, but it is the same division. I mean, if you'd said to me, were there a fight over economic policy, what would the issues be and who would be on either side of the debate? I'd have got it right because it is that same debate going on. Now, I suspect that what we will see is some clever kind of fudge because both sides have dug their heels in. I don't see the Netherlands giving in to everything that the Commission has wanted. Equally, I think the Dutch realise that they have to give something. So as ever, it'll be incremental. It'll be small steps. It won't be revolutionary, but it will be important that they've kept the show on the road. But don't underestimate the opposition amongst some of the so-called frugal states, both to giving money away rather than loaning money, and to doing either without serious conditions as to how that money is spent. And I think it is around those two issues that the fight will be the most bitter. And I expect, as ever, that the EU will kind of muddle through this, not with some Hamiltonian moment that has been talked about so much, but with some fudge settlement that just about allows everyone to go home and claim victory. Now, what I would say is, I think medium term, this might store problems up because some of the data from Italy about public opinion is truly startling. The Italians have elections in a couple of years. And one of the implications of this, as so often with European integration, is what matters isn't what this means for European integration. What matters is how it feeds into domestic politics and attitudes towards the EU within the member states. And at the moment, the signs aren't all that encouraging. Yeah, I'd say that there's two things, Anon, where I say that if you go back to 2015, there are really important new divisions. The first is in 2015 that they weren't arguing about enlargement to the Western Balkans. You didn't have anything like Macron vetoing um, Macedonia and um, Albania's candidate status back in 2015. And the other, and I think this, you know, this is in some sense even bigger because it, I think, affects everything to do now with the geopolitical world in which we're living is a China question, is that the EU member states weren't really falling out with each other about their relations with China back um, then. 
And now you have you know, really significant differences, not just between those states that are in China's one belt, one road, and Italy is the most significant of those, but differences between Germany and France. And I think that this matters for the negotiations with Britain as well, because what we've seen during this crisis is as the Hong Kong situation has developed, that the British government and the EU have taken very different positions on the Hong Kong issue. The British position has been much tougher it's been much more aligned with the Americans and the, the EU position has been rather softer. And I think it's quite striking if you look at the, the foreign policy way in which the British government has gone during the COVID crisis is, is it's effectively held its position with the EU. In fact, I'd say it's actually gone a little bit closer to the EU on Iran issues and it's really departed from the EU on China issues. I wanted to come back to the Germany point. I wanted to particularly raise the decision of the Bundesverfassungsgericht, the German Constitutional Court, about one of the asset purchasing programmes. And the German Constitutional Court launched a really very serious attack against uh, the Court of Justice and the European Central Bank and said essentially both of them were acting ultra vires. And this was an extraordinary judgment, 200 odd. Of, of just cha- constant attack on the EU institutions. Now, it is extraordinary to see a constitutional court talk about another essentially constitutional court, the Court of Justice, in these terms. And of course, it's led to considerable anxiety and, and division in Germany itself. The German Supreme Court president was highly critical of what the constitutional court had said and done. But the, the, the key point is that the cases keep being brought by those who are disaffected in Germany, challenging particularly the decisions of the European Central Bank. And of course, now the European Central Bank has got to try and respond to the decision of the German Constitutional Court without actually formally responding to the decision of the German Central the Constitutional Court, because of course the Central Bank is independent. But whatever it does, it's likely to be challenged again. And this is already building up ahead of steam in Germany and, of course, gives the green light to those who are disaffected in Hungary and Poland to say, look, the German Constitutional Court, one of the most respected constitutional courts in Europe, is critical of what the ECJ is doing. Therefore, we, Polish and Hungarian courts, don't need to comply. And there are, of course, serious concerns about rule of law issues in those countries. So is there any way that um, skillful British negotiations could exploit these divisions? So there's the division, as Anand put it, between, let's call them as he did, the frugal states and maybe the less frugal states. There's the division in Europe between East and West, but particularly Hungary and Poland and some other EU states and the possibility of a fundamental divergence there. Could the British, the UK side exploit these things? Is there any leverage that could be had? I've never understood this. Is it possible to kind of take the frugal states to one side and negotiate something that allows them some leverage in the internal within EU discussions? Or are these things really separate? We didn't see that at all over the divorce text. Indeed, the EU 27 seemed to unite very well against a common enemy, inverted commas, i.e. the United Kingdom. So the internal divisions haven't reflected, had an external manifestation. And of course, what we're also seeing, take fish, when the Michel Barnier showed some signs of saying, look, we can be a bit more flexible here. The fishing states, a number of which are, of course, the frugal states, because they're geographically connected to the UK. So 
the Netherlands, Germany, Denmark and so forth said, no, no, we've got to be even stricter than we were before. Now, fishing is not a big issue for Romania. Anand? Well, I think I think a lot of the things we hear commonly about the negotiations get things exactly the wrong way around. I mean, one example is this notion that Boris Johnson having a majority of 80 gives him more strength in the negotiations. Not at all. What you need to have strength in negotiations is a weak domestic position that allows you credibly to say, look, I can't give concessions. You've got a majority of 80. The EU know you have. They know that you can pass anything. So, And when it comes to the EU itself, their divisions make them less likely to fall out over Brexit, because every member state thinks, I've got bigger fish to fry. I'm not wasting the limited political capital I have in Brussels on fighting a corner on Brexit. I've got the recovery fund to think about. I've got the migration issue to think about. I've got East versus West when it comes to values to think about. They are the things that really matter to me. So actually, because Brexit is a second or third order issue, let's just wave that through, keep our united front and save our energy for the serious battles to come. This is complicated by the fact, again, by what's been going on in other areas at the moment and the fact that the that there are you know, internal divisions within the EU over a whole range of matters. That doesn't necessarily mean they're going to end up affecting the, the Brexit negotiations, but I think that in principle that they could. And I think that in particular, I mean, I know that this is well-versed you know, territories, is that we should look at the different ways in which Macron and Merkel seem to be looking at the Brexit question. For Macron, I think that his position in some sense seems harder than it was towards the end of last year when he was saying sort of quite complimentary things about Boris Johnson. And there doesn't seem any evidence uh, from what we've seen anyway that he really wants to, is willing to to move on this, what I would say is this existential question for the EU about, you know, does it have the authority, not just in a, in a legal sense, but the, the political clout, the political power, essentially to dictate terms about state aid if the UK wants a trade agreement with the European Union. If you look at the, by contrast, though, the interview that Merkel gave towards the beginning of June, she said something like that the EU needed to give up on the idea that it could decide the relationship that Britain wanted with the European Union. She seemed to suggest that that was an attitude that was applicable whilst Theresa May was prime minister, but that that idea that it was for the EU to decide what the Britain should want is not something that's any longer tenable whilst Boris Johnson is prime minister. And I'm not sure that Macron really any longer thinks, if he did think in those terms late last December, I'm not sure he really thinks in those terms now. So I think that it would be you know, absurd to think that 27 member states of the European Union are all going to take the same attitude towards this existential question about what they should do with an independently sovereign UK as a neighbour with whom they already have a deep trade and financial relationship. If they're not going to disagree about that, you'd think there's something actually sort of wrong with the way in which the EU considers these questions. Now, in some sense, I think there is, is that the European Union isn't capable really of engaging seriously with geopolitical questions. But the fact that they will disagree doesn't necessarily mean that that's an opportunity for for Britain to play them off against each other. Because I think that actually the ways in which those disagreements will play themselves out are so bound up with all the other things that the EU states in turn disagree with each other about that it actually restricts the opportunity for the British government to try to draw out those divisions for its advantage. Can I ask a question about what's going on inside the British negotiating team? There's always a question about who's driving it. There's always the Cummings question, although at the moment his focus seems to be on Whitehall reform. But I'm sure as we get nearer the cliff edge, if he's still around, 
he'll have a part to play. But there is a question about David Frost and his appointment as National Security Advisor, and some people trying to interpret the fact that the Brexit negotiator is now also National Security Advisor signals that for this government, issues of trade are in some sense more important than issues of security, that a, a trade person is now in charge of security. Or you could read it the other way around, that combining those two roles means that security questions are going to come into the Brexit negotiations. I don't know if anyone has any idea whether either of those two positions are plausible. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because on the one hand, the British government has staunchly refused to talk about foreign and security policy in the Brexit negotiations to the evident frustration of uh, Michel Barnier. On the other hand, you're right that foreign policy to an extent now is all about trade because the politics of this means Boris Johnson has to have some trade deals to wave around because he needs to show that global Britain is a reality. And this isn't about the economics of those deals. It is simply about being able to show that we've signed deals with other people. I think the Frost situation speaks partly to me to the fact that this government just likes picking fights with the usual suspects. My colleague Jill Rutter is up in arms about this at the moment. There are all kinds of ways you could put Frost in this sort of position or find a way, make him the Prime Minister's Sherpa for all things international and have someone else to take minutes at the National Security Council, for instance. But part of this speaks for me to the fact that maybe it's Dominic Cummings, maybe it's the Prime Minister himself, is quite happy to pick fights with what they see as the sort of old establishment just to make a point. Catherine, do you know who's driving the show at the moment? I don't have any insights in, into that. I think what the the good news that we can see for those who are in favour of having some sort of trade deal Brexit is that they are now meeting in person. I would also say that I think there's been quite a lot of posturing on both sides for show. I, I think of it a bit like a boxing match where the, the, the prize fighters are sort of sizing each other up and jumping up and down and making quite a lot of noise. But the moment that um, they're in a room together, I think it's widely thought that this will improve things no end, not least because you can have a water cooler moment where some more informal discussions can take place and you can try and say how much flexibility, how much space is there. And so I do see it's more positive that um, they are physically together this week. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's, it's not quite right to separate out the question of Dominic Cummings' attitude towards Whitehall reform from his position in regard to the Brexit negotiations. I think for Cummings and for others in the government, including members of the cabinet, that these two questions have always been very much linked together, that they have seen a different kind of civil service as a necessary condition of making a success of Brexit. I'm just sort of, in some sense, guessing at this, but looking at it from the outside, it seems to me that the personnel moves that have been made over the last week or so, in part reflect the fact that the government's position in regard to, if you like, the legitimacy of Brexit in domestic politics and within the British state is not as strong as it was at the beginning of the year before the COVID crisis broke. At the beginning of the year, you had a government that had just won a large majority in a general election and its primary mandate that had come out of that election was get Brexit done. Britain had formally left the the European Union at the end of January. And I think that what happened at the beginning of the COVID crisis is is that some people on the the Remain side saw the possibility of a longer transition than looked um, previously likely. And in part that the government saw that as something that they had then politically to react against and did not want a longer transition 
to be an opportunity to have to, for those opposed to Brexit, to refight the fight all over again. And in some sense, the government's position of being against extending the transition arrangements past this deadline that we've just gone past and wanting some change in, in personnel reflects the fact that they were put back on the defensive. And, and on your point about your sort of game theoretic point about the fact that in these kind of negotiations to be domestically strong makes you weak because it gives you more wriggle room. Has anything changed given that, so Keir Starmer on the one hand has tried to park Brexit as an issue quite successfully. And on the other hand, he's having a good crisis and he's now polling alongside or ahead of Boris Johnson as a alternative prime minister and this government is facing the kind of serious domestic opposition even though it has a big parliamentary majority that Theresa May never faced I mean Corbyn as leader of the opposition created a completely different dynamic in British politics than Starmer does does that potentially on your account because it it doesn't weaken the government but it you know there is a serious alternative government we won't see it for a while but in waiting does that change the dynamic in Brexit negotiations? It obviously changes things in our politics because you know members of this government who were around and with Corbyn as leader of the opposition have had to readjust to the fact that there's someone serious over the aisle who will really challenge them. My sense is that that pertains more to COVID and the, the way the government has dealt with the health crisis and with the coming economic crisis rather than Brexit. I, my, my suspicion is the government is quite nicely set up on Brexit with everyone talking about the dangers of no deal, there's precious little attention being paid to the fact that what we might end up with is a deal that is so thin that its impact on a lot of businesses will be pretty similar to that of no deal. But because the focus of the debate is on deal versus no deal, I suspect that whatever Boris Johnson signs in the autumn, assuming that they get a deal, he will be able to bring it back and perform again the trick he performed last autumn, which is to get a deal that in a sense was always on offer, which required us to make significant sacrifices. In that case, it was the Northern Ireland Protocol. In this case, it will be the depth of our trading relationship with the European Union and to hail it as a victory and to get away with it. And I'm not sure that the Labour Party will get the purchase to really interrogate that because, as I said, this debate is couched as deal versus no deal rather than good deal versus bad deal. So that leads to my last question. I'm not going to ask people to make predictions, though you made a kind of quite a plausible prediction there. And a huge amount depends on where we are with the COVID crisis in the autumn. But if we think that, and this is only one possible scenario, that that crisis remains, relatively speaking, under control. So Andy Haldane at the Bank of England has just said that he thinks that we are heading possibly for a V-shaped recovery, both domestically and globally. So if you go for that slightly more optimistic scenario, what are the crunch points? We had these conversations a year ago, and I found it always really helpful to get a sense of what are the points. I mean, the 31st of December is the obvious crunch point. But before that, where do you think are the likely points where choices will have to be made? I mean, or is it, again, possible that it comes right up to the wire? Or are there points, do you think, could be this month, it could be in September, October, November, where we see more clarity. Catherine, do you have a sense of where you are expecting things to become clearer before the 31st of of December? Well, in reality, 31st of October is probably the, the most important crunch point, because if it's going to be what's called a mixed agreement, which is an agreement that has got to be signed both by the EU and by the member states, 
it means it's got to go through all of the national and regional parliaments. And that will take time. And of course, the European Parliament's got to vote on it too. And so there's got to be a text on which they can vote. And unlike with the withdrawal agreement, which went absolutely up to the wire, and they could do that because it didn't need to be approved by all of the national and regional parliaments, this deal cannot be left to the 30th of December. And so the 31st of October, it seems, is thought to be the sort of real crunch point because you need to factor in that time. And don't just think it's going to sail through the national and regional parliaments because we've already seen how the Dutch parliament are really concerned about the CETA, that's the EU's trade deal with Canada. And that's being discussed and debated this week. So that's crucial. So we have to work back from there. You saw discussions earlier in the week that Boris Johnson thought the deal could be done by the end of August. I don't think anyone really thinks that's the case because, of course, August is a month for holidays for many folk on the continent. And even with the COVID crisis, I suspect there will be a pause in activity over the latter part of the summer months. So in reality, we're talking about frenetic activity, lots of trips on the Eurostar, September and early October. So really, looking at how things will look at the start of October, start to middle of October, to see if there's any chance of a deal being put in place. Helen, what do you reckon? I agree with that in the sense that obviously the ratification is just a fundamental part of the EU's politics of this in a way in which it wasn't, um, it, which it wasn't last time. I think the, the other thing I would say is, is that there's going to be in the autumn some external stress points too, uh, which I don't think we should rule out as having an impact on what happens. There's going to be really serious conflicts running up into October about what to do about the UN-Iran arms embargo. So far, the UK and the EU have been on the same side on that against um, Trump. But then there's the question of the American election that's going to obviously appear in early November. And I, you know, I think there's a scenario in which it really looks like Trump is going to lose the election um, will have an impact on the, the British position because the risk would be that if Joe Biden were to become the American president, that the chances of a UK-US trade deal might well be diminished. Anand, what do you reckon? Well, I agree with all of that. But just to sort of stick some more dates in your diary, one of the interesting things that will happen in the autumn is there's due to be a Franco-British summit to mark the 10th anniversary of the Lancaster House Agreement, which was a quite a far-ranging defence agreement that we signed with the French. And that, I think, will give us some clues on an issue we were talking about before, which is just how closely this government wants to collaborate on matters military and security with its European partners. And further ahead, I, I just point up two other things. Firstly, January does matter because the degree to which there is a disruption caused by Brexit, perhaps in food supply chains that have survived remarkably unscathed during COVID, will help shape public attitudes towards whether Brexit has gone well or badly. And next spring is massive politically because we not only have two sets of local elections. And remember, this is all about politics for this government. This is all about getting re-elected. So we have two sets of local elections next spring. And we also, of course, have Scottish elections next spring, which will be crucial in terms of whether or not we end up with a second Indy ref. So for me, that's when we start to understand what the political upshot of this process has been for Boris Johnson. 
Catherine mentioned the judgment of the German Constitutional Court, and we did an episode not that long ago with Adam Tooze about some of the implications of that judgment. That will be in our show notes, and as always, we'll tweet the link to that at tppodcast underscore. We have a couple of extra episodes this week on our other podcast, Talking Politics, History of Ideas. We've recorded an episode in which I try to answer some of the many really interesting and challenging questions that we got about those talks. If you're a subscriber to History of Ideas, that episode will pop up automatically. If you'd like to hear it otherwise, all you have to do is search for Talking Politics, History of Ideas, wherever you get your podcasts. It will be there on Friday. On this podcast, this weekend, we have an interview with James Meek. We spoke to him a while ago about his brilliant essay on the NHS. He's written another one in this edition of the London Review of Books about the WHO. So we're going to be talking about the WHO, the NHS and COVID. And Helen and I will be back in our regular slot next week. Do please join us for all of that. My name is David Runciman and we've been talking politics. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Jesse Cruikshank. Jesse Cruikshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout. Because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.